Fusion Patrol is a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can help support us at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. This is the Fusion Patrol podcast. Each week, we look at a different science fiction TV episode or movie and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. Welcome to the discussion. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Simon. And tonight we're looking at the Doom Watch episode, In the Dark. Episode synopsis. A young man is improbably going for a swim in the waters off the Scottish coast. He encounters a strange yellow substance floating in the water and dies. He has been killed by mustard gas. John Ridge wants to investigate, but Quist is uninterested, but relents, allowing Ridge to proceed in the search for the source of the mustard gas, which he suspects is the HMS Woodstock, which sunk with a cargo of mustard gas. An old friend of Quist's and famous scientist, MacArthur, was commander of the ship, and Ridge proposes to start his investigation there. The mustard gas crisis plays little or no further part in this story. MacArthur, despite having a regular BBC radio program, hasn't actually been seen in two years, and absolutely no one will give Ridge permission to see him. The runaround lasts for weeks, until Quist deigns to write a letter to MacArthur asking for Ridge to gain an audience. That request, too, is rejected, and the runaround continues, but wheels have been set in motion. Privately, at MacArthur's home, MacArthur's daughter Flora wants to let Quist see her father, but her husband, Dr. Seaton, doesn't want Quist to find out about the scientific advances they've made with MacArthur. Flora expresses her concern that her father isn't really alive. The BBC confirms that MacArthur does not show up to record his program, but instead supplies them pre-recorded months in advance. Next, The newspaper reports that the stock of MacArthur's company is taking a beating upon rumors that MacArthur is actually dead. Ridge and Hardcastle plot to get to the bottom of the mystery and plan a trip to Scotland to get in to see MacArthur once and for all. No need, says Quist. MacArthur's holding a press conference tomorrow in London. Ridge attends in the guise of a journalist. MacArthur explains that he has been very ill, but is now quite well although he has turned over operation of the company to his son-in-law, Seton. Ridge manages to corner him about the Woodstock, but his answers are unusually vague. His memory is not what it used to be. After reviewing the BBC tapes, Ridge and Quist are convinced the man at the press conference was an imposter. Indeed, back at the MacArthur home, we, the audience, learn that the man at the press conference was MacArthur's look-alike cousin, acting on Seton's instructions and coaching. Ridge and Fay head to Scotland to demand to see MacArthur. Meanwhile, after consulting with her father, she invites Quist to visit, but he does not receive the invitation until Fay and Ridge have already arrived. When knocking at the front door fails, Fay creates a diversion and Ridge attempts to break in. Both fail, and Seton threatens prosecution, but when Ridge bites back that withholding information on the Woodstock, which may kill again, is tantamount to murder, Seton relents and they await Quist's arrival. When Quist arrives, we learn the truth. MacArthur had a fatal illness that slowly creeps up through the body, paralyzing and destroying. But MacArthur, the brilliant scientist, and Dr. Seton have replaced virtually everything except MacArthur's head with machinery. He is alive, not in pain, lucid, and 100% on board with what has happened to him. He has cheated death. He may even be immortal. Soon, even his head will become paralyzed, but they have prepared for that contingency too. They are working on a method by which he can use his brainwaves to communicate with them via yes-no pulses and, with time, perhaps even Morse code. Flora doesn't really think her father is truly human anymore, but she cannot switch him off. She loves him. Seton is too caught up in the work to be able to consider ending it. Flora asks Quisk to talk MacArthur into agreeing to end it. Quist and MacArthur have discussions. MacArthur thinks that he is better than human. Soon, he will be pure thought, unfettered by the physical, capable of making his own reality. Quist 
sees it as a living hell, locked in the dark, unable to adequately communicate, divorced from the physical reality that makes us human. MacArthur accuses Quist of being unable to see beyond the physical. MacArthur espouses the duality notion that his brain is just a repository for his mind, a separate non-physical manifestation of what he is and what he can become. He even hopes to remove all emotion, for that, too, is surely just leftovers from the instinctive animal part of the human being. Slowly, though, MacArthur comes around and, in a final conversation with his daughter, tells her that it is time to let him die. Later, with Quist and Faye still there for support, and with her father, oblivious in the other room, Flora shuts off the machinery, and MacArthur quietly dies. Oh, and Ridge found the ship, and the mustard gas problem was remediated. The end. So this is by John Gould, not Kit Peddler and Jerry Davis, which just amazes the heck out of me. I know. I know. I, I didn't, Kit, I didn't Kit look Peddler at the name. Kit Peddler and Jerry Davis create their own TV series, and you have to wait 22 episodes until there's a Cyberman. Yeah, and then they didn't even write it. Yeah. That, that really blows my mind. I, I did not pay attention to the writer's name at the beginning, and I'm once it became clear what was going on, I'm like, oh, this is Kit Bedler and Jerry Davis. And, and wouldn't have things been so much better for the universe if Quist had a counterpart on Mondas? You know, <laughs> <laughs> he could have talked that first guy out of it and then problem solved. The Cyberman will end. So what did you think of this episode? Oh, my God. Patrick I'm... Trenton. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, where to start? Where to start? I'm very excited about this episode. Um, but yes, I mean, the cast. Patrick Troughton playing two roles. I mean, this is enemy of the world all over again. <laughs> Same mustache, didn't he? Yes, yes. <laughs> he probably kept it. <laughs> That's possible. It's just possible. Um, yeah, I, this, was a, this was a fascinating episode. There are a couple problems, but uh, yeah, it, it really was a, a another Doom Watch success story, hitting it out of the park. Yeah, where do you want to start? I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it, the Trouton was was superb casting because I think I mean it was it was it was great to see him in both roles, but obviously the the big part is as um lion and he's just ahead on a bed <laughs> he's just um, ahead of the rest of us yeah. yeah not that not that not that alan is actually that animated a character but still that he he's a head that gives these extremely long speeches and i mean i really really think the writing in this is top notch and you know the the speeches themselves are very good when they, when they sort of go off into these soliloquies. But nevertheless, to to have someone just delivering these these sort of long these long pieces, these and quite philosophical pieces, uh, it, I, th I think it, I think it takes a certain caliber of actor to do that. So you know, hmm. the 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 casting is is terrific. And so is the direction. The di I, I had to to look it up because I was just I I, I thought the, I thought the opening was great. You know that that drowning was horrific weird. because it was very realistically executed. It was weird. I I found that weird. If there's anything in this really? episode, yes. Uh, okay, trying to divorce myself from the limitations of television in the 1970s trying to do that sometimes it can't one is weird that unlike the other doom watch episodes this one the guy's drowning eh, 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 drown 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 fire after the big credits come back oh guy's still under the water and he's dead i mean we knew he was dead yes i right? yes we, we i knew would say he was that dead. that's an unnecessary shot but nevertheless the pre-titles bit is it's it's decent yes yes it's, it's it realistic was... I would never jump in water with a floaty patch of yellow floating along on it. Of course, I would never jump in water off the coast of Scotland, which is why I find this highly improbable. But uh, <laughs> I'll barely say, go in the water anywhere in, you know, 
even as far north as California, uh, Southern California, because the water gets too cold. So, uh, <laughs> and then there's sharks and and probably fish, which are evil. And yeah, no. So that as as someone who last jumped in the water five days ago, I'm I'm saying this is this is a pretty terrifying sequence to look at, and it's it's not it's not the kind of the the sort of standard drowning sequence where you know there's a lot of shouting and mashing of the waves because you can't shout when your lungs are filling with water and it 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 was the veracity of it i think that that made it particularly horrific even though it was a, it was just you know it was there were no sea monsters or anything it was just a guy who who you know who was who'd suddenly found himself unable to breathe i i guess i didn't think that was what his problem was either i mean it looked to me like he was suffering from skin burn cuz he was kind of thrashing like he was trying to his arms and stuff like it was burning him which mustard gas would in fact do that before it got into his lungs i think i mean i don't know what mustard gas does when it's floating on top of the water is a big obvious yellow warning sign that you should not swim into me but but you know uh, yeah i thought i thought he was going down with burns and that 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 the fact that he simply couldn't maintain swimming because he was in Agony, frankly, is what caused him to to drown. Nonetheless, he, he did drown, and they have that what should be an incredibly horrific shot right after the credits uh, of his lifeless body, eyes open in a swimming pool, staring at the <laughs> camera, which is, I think, the problem. He's clearly in a swimming pool <laughs> on that, or a water tank of some kind. And I just, just thought it was not necessary shot. It's an but, unnecessary shot. It's very unnecessary, especially considering that the whole mustard gas subplot is largely unnecessary to this story. Well, except except that it's it's the MacGuffin to get you into the to get quest. Well, it's it, not once even again, the MacGuffin. It, it's what's what's good about it is that we is that we start out with a kind of a workaday story for the Doomwatch team. This is their bread and butter stuff, right? They're, I guess, yeah. They're, they're, they're Quist picking, doesn't seem to think so, but yeah. Well, all right, but 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 Ridge does, and that's part of yeah. the that's part of the kind of day to day office politics that go on there. And so he's Ridge is interested in investigating this, and it's 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 pretty standard. It's pretty it's pretty straightforward, and and we see we seg from the. The, that kind of day-to-day business into something altogether more metaphysical, which just mm-hmm. happens to, you know, they, they happen upon it. And once again, it happened, there happens to be a quist connection, connection. but nevertheless, also, yeah, it, that, that is, that is the interesting story. And it's not, it's not something that Doomwatch you, it's not something you can see they would necessarily investigate as a as a kind of public health issue or anything like that but it's nevertheless an absolutely fascinating exploration of a a, a, a kind of a, a science fiction extrapolation of hmm. where where technology was is i mean it's another one that's still so very relevant it, it is taking us and goodness me it's so much better than the 10th planet i really enjoyed the story don't get me wrong but i definitely got the feeling especially looking back on it with hindsight having seen the entire episode um that my guess is that that mr Gould had the conversations between quist and macarthur in his mind and that that was obviously the gem of the idea that he had. He had some concepts that he wanted to hit, and I think he hit them beautifully. Mm-hmm. And he had to put them in a position. And he came up and said, ah, this is a 12 to 13 minute episode. Now what do I do? And so <laughs> we have to go through the entire process of, you know, the mustard gas to bring them in. We have to go through weeks of runaround, which, you know, at least they condensed it down to only 
10, 15 minutes of the episode, I think. Um, and, and, you know, the, all of that stuff. And those pieces don't feel as well thought out. And, and oh, well, Ridge, that, Ridge breaking in with Faye and then, you know, even to the point of like, huh. all right, we're going to break into the house. Okay, first, let's kill a little time by having you walk up to the house, knock on the door. Then we'll find out if it works. If it doesn't work, then we'll come back. And then I'll break into the house. And and then they break in. And then that fails because it's really just a delaying tactic to get there till Quist gets there. Because that's when the story begins. Everything up to that, up to the point where Quist walks in that door, this story hasn't started yet. And that would be my complaint, if anything, is that I don't know. I think you. I I think you're watching a different episode from me. I mean, I the the structure of this episode is absolutely superb. The way that it starts out, and and uh, this isn't the first time we've seen this in Doomwatch, but the way that it starts out in one direction and then it takes a sudden curve into a into a completely different area. It, I think is a really it's a really satisfying storytelling technique, particularly for these kinds of these kinds of explorations of the of the of the kind of um, the the scientific issues. But specifically on those questions of the the more, if you like, mundane office of doom watch stuff going on before you get to what you regard as the real story. I would say we are getting some of the best writing for those characters that we've had. The 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 different interplay between um yeah, you know, there's well there's a lot there's been a lot of Ridge and Quiffs stuff, but but that is very good. The the um Ridge Chantry stuff, uh, that's really good. And generally speaking, as because it is a kind of I mean, I take your point about Quist being involved in in the kind of climactic sequences um, with the, all the kind of death speechifying. But this is a this is on any other terms. This is a pretty good Ridge centric all action episode for the for the ex spy. You know, do, doing he still never manages to break into anything. Yeah, directly. No, but that's. He break. He always manages to break into things. It's just he always gets caught. But that okay. just seems. To, that <laughs> just seems. I don't know if that counts, but okay. I assume you break in, you you get back out again. Is kind of the. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember him ever doing that. He did once he, in the plastic eaters. I think he got out again. He definitely got caught in that, though, didn't he? Did he get caught in that? I I no, I, don't. I I think Maybe. he got caught in that. I think he got Maybe. caught in that, but you know we've we, we've got him, we've got him doing the the diving stuff. We've got him clambering over the roofs in this, setting fires. I mean, yeah, pretty good. Doing a little pretty psychoanalysis good. of uh, Quist, which I want to definitely come back to. Well, uh, yes, in- <laughs> indeed, but but that's that that's echoing uh, stuff from the from the the exchanges between Quist and and um, of course Arthur. Yes, of course. Again, it comes back to I really feel like Gould had some really, really solid character insights that he wanted to get on paper. And mm. and they come after Quist arrives at the you know, at the house. So so, you know, it's so meaty towards the end that it it just it, do, it does get meaty towards the, the end. But but I've complained about episodes where the story runs out and this we one just sort of switched off with with, with padding. Uh, well, no. <laughs> it reach it. it yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, at the, at, it's the it's the right moment for it. It's the right moment. Yes, I know. <laughs> but the, but the, know. but but the padding, if you want to call it padding, but it but it's you know extremely enjoyable padding. That all occurs as part of the build up. You know, I I always enjoy the build up. I get disappointed when the payoff isn't what we isn't what we were promised as the, you know, as the build-up mounts. And that really wasn't the case in this episode. I thought the payoff was superb. All right, I'm going to take a, a, a quick question before we get into unless we... I, I, so let's do the, the non-meaty stuff if we have anything. But I have a, a question. It just occurred to me while you were uh, 
postulating some of that, that there are quite a few episodes of Doom Watch where they, in the course of their duties or the course of wild coincidence, they run across these situations that are not necessarily directly Doom Watch related. And you could look at that as being a horrible plot contrivance, plot contrivance at the very least, or is it intentional that, you know, we've got Doomwatch in this universe. We have Doomwatch. They're looking out for us, but Doomwatch isn't enough. It's just the wildest stroke of luck that they run across some of these things and, and bring them to light. Whether or not this is a dangerous thing that needed to be brought to light is perhaps another question. But Well, um, I think it's not, which is why it's kind of not a Doomwatch issue. But in other episodes... You know, yes, they save the world from disaster because of something that they really weren't supposed to be part of. And, you know, you could argue that that's the writer saying our diligence isn't enough. Just because we have people looking out for this, we need to be even more proactive and, and yes. even more watchful, more doom watchful in, in the scheme of scheme. Of no, I, th- I think that's a that's a fair point. And, and it's it's valid and it perhaps excuses some of the slightly um coincidental nature of the the way in which the story seemed to depend on things that have been stumbled upon rather than there there being a kind of a, a logical connection why the doomwatch team should become involved and the funny thing here in a way is that the is that the area where you would think the authorities should become involved and this is authorities in a broader sense is that it seems to me and i'm no um financial lawyer but <laughs> it seems to me okay. that there is a fraud in order to manipulate the share price of the macarthur stock being perpetrated in having a press conference in which someone is presented as being lion macarthur who is not lion macarthur i would agree no that one, is a that is a no one gives a toss about it. Well, no one you know. knows except for the Doomwatch team. The, yeah, and no one in the Doomwatch team cares about that at all. Well, he is alive. I mean, it is. A, you're right. It's a fraud, and I'm sure the Securities Commission would probably have uh, have something to say about it. Um, yeah, it, it's definitely malfeasance. Uh, there's no doubt about it. That would definitely be a crime. Um, but it's not nearly as cool as having Patrick Troughton play two parts and also it gets to <laughs> fill up another five to ten minutes of the story that that was that was yeah perhaps a little short for time on the episode so what what is up with Quist this is maybe what the 12th episode in a row where he just basically doesn't seem to care when somebody brings something to his desk that honestly it seems like mustard gas to me in the coast might be a doom watch issue this does not seem like a, this does not seem like, I, I'm actually, it seems like, hey, military, get out there and find it, and that they would be extremely worried uh, and try to find it. But uh, given that it's Doomwatch doing it, why is it that Quist, for the last few episodes, when they bring him something, he's like, look at, I've got this interesting thing. Yeah, whatever, get on with it, go away. And, and he just doesn't seem to care. I, um, I think that may be his management style rather than... It. <laughs> Don't bother me until it's a crisis. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I he, well, he yeah. he's he's not exactly uh, he's not exactly the typical team player, or in any sense a democrat. <laughs> Has he got anyone on his team that's typically a team player? Maybe country Hardcastle. I feel like Hardcastle wants to be rich. Really? I don't. I, d- of- I don't have a strong sense of what Hardcastle wants. He. I kind of get the impression that he's kind of like, hey, Ridge is going on an adventure. I, that sounds like my what I should be doing, too. I That's just kind of the feel I get at him because he just comes off as sort of young and uh, I don't want to exactly say enthusiastic, but I guess anything other than collecting, cutting newspaper clippings in the back room like he was doing a few weeks ago. Um, Chantry seems to be a better character, although I don't know that she's super well used in this episode. No, but it... Uh... It's quite fun having her team up with Ridge. Yeah, it's 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 good having somebody to to fall back on and talk with. Ridge Ridge by himself is not apart from breaking in and 
and pretending to be John Steed, um, really his <laughs> repertoire. Um, let's see. I'm just trying to catch some of the stuff that that went earlier in the episode. It was it was a decent job of hiding the fact that MacArthur was still alive. Yes. You know, there there is the daughter's comments keeping him alive. It's debatable. I really didn't and know it, where this was going. Yeah, this stuff about you can't hide death. And it made me think of that, uh, that Sherlock Holmes story. I think it's uh, Shoscombe Old Place, where obviously they do, oh, spoilers, but they do hide death. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, is this something, is this a play on that? Is this, you know, not not just hiding death, but actually holding back death for some sort of personal gain? And I thought that there was going to be an element of him being, and, and I, I guess he is in a way, but not in this way. I somehow, based on her comments, thought that he was basically locked in. The in the dark was uh -huh. a reference to the fact that he was dead. But that they were artificially keeping him alive, you know, in a in a full waking coma or something. But he's Diving completely locked in, type thing. Yeah. So uh, I I did not expect his head to be moving uh, <laughs> or talking. <laughs> well, that see, even that that would have been a struggle even for Patrick Troughton, I think. Uh, yes, I think blinking or you know not even able to blink would have been tough for him. But yeah, no, I. I it's fine. It, it just was, uh, it, no, it, it's better than fine. Like I said, they did a really good job of hiding from me what was going on in the episode. I, I didn't expect it to be what it was when we got there. So points on that. I guess uh, you, you mentioned the direction. Oh, yes. I can't yes. say that I noticed a whole lot about the direction with the exception I, of the window shot in the car as Faye is approaching. Yes. But yeah, that, a bit flashy. Yeah, it seemed, it seemed uh, you know, ambitious. <laughs> but 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 yeah, a bit a bit like that shot at the beginning that you complained about might 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 be attracting attention for the you know to the extent that it's distracting. But I, I mean, generally speak, there were a lot of interesting shots in terms of the photography, but also pretty much every performance in this is perfect and superbly job judged and i know i i know i've gone on about the writing which i did i did really like but some of the lines are quite melodramatic and it would be easy to go very much over the top with these and yet there's the the, the, the performance is sort of given a space to 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 do that and to make the most of their lines without I felt going on going over the top. The director was Lenny Main, by the way, who would go on to direct Troughton in The Three Doctors and who also directed both Peladon stories and The Hand of Fear. Okay. Don't remember any flashy shots in either of those, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the, but the, the Peladon stories, I think, are excellently directed. Actually, and the, yeah, The Hand of Fear, I really like the way that's... Oh um, yeah, the hand of fear the is actually ever, is quite actually the hand of fear does stand out compared to most episodes of yeah. classic Doctor Who. I will go with that. There is a few hand of fear, especially Planet the, of Evil, the, the first uh, episode or two. Yes, before they get studio bound. Yeah, let's get to now. Let's let's do Ridge and uh, I. The one part that I wanted to pull out on Ridge was his comment, and I don't have it exactly quoted down here, so I'll. I'll have to paraphrase. It's like, you know, I watch, I watch Quist he, talking to Quist. Um, you don't go walking. You don't walk down ordinary streets. You walk down deserted villages and um, battered piers or shattered piers, um, which I can only assume we are specifically referring to the pier that Toby Wren died on and yeah. the village that they had to, evacuate which obviously he didn't go walk down so that's metaphorical he is he's he's intentionally pulling out things that quist feels really awful about in that dig which i also think is kind of unique for a writer to have drawn on the stuff of others in the series 
that's usually a lot of times when you see that it's either intended as a multi-part piece or it's maybe the same writer well i don't we know just, we get you know remember but we get some of the stories where the whitehall politics is part of the episode and there's some continuity there but the, but this is different to that i think because it's not we you know we don't have any of that as part of the plot it's purely there the what you're describing is purely there because it's a it's a character assessment from one of our main regulars to another we also have the character assessment of macarthur of quist and he's pretty much right on on the money too always taking the blame always taking the blame every death you die a little bit more uh a little of quist dies again you're only responsible for you the only thing you can control is your own body he says and then even that's got out of hand yeah although in the end obviously it was it was uh macarthur who yeah makes the final decision even though he himself cannot do so but then there's then there's quist's response to all this or at least his response to ridge because ridge is ridge is telling him just to go back to london you don't even have to turn off a switch and mm-hmm. quist's response to that is he he's saying he chooses to take that responsibility i'm a man a, a human being i choose yeah which is then reflected i think in the next scene with macarthur if mm-hmm. i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. does well let's let's assess that because it, it does feel like it does feel like a segue to the next scene and and i guess possibly going back to the criticism of of earlier it's like the pieces is set up for the conversations between macarthur and and quist there is is that a valid response from from quist is that, is that did that have a did that was that meaningful rebuttal to ridge's point uh because i yes i think it is because it reflects this it reflects the theme that runs through a number of the exchanges in this about the difference between man and animal in this case choice yes but no, I guess I guess what I'm getting at in a way is does Quist really choose to take on those responsibilities or is that part of the makeup of the man, the animal? As in you can make a dog salivate by ringing a bell. You're saying he 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 responds in a certain way like like that. You can make a man excited by showing him a pretty girl and MacArthur is saying I want to get rid of emotion altogether all instinct mm-hmm. all of them get in the way of thought and you're saying what quist is doing there is actually instinct so innate innate makeup of his personality which is not just an instinctive thing it's the summation of a lifetime of agreements it's that mind that uh that yes he it's came, who he is he I came mean, that, of yes. but is that is that then a choice if it's if it is the innate default position that that that's what Quist does, it, I, I I mean, this is fascinating discussion about people making choices, and you know, in the subsequent years, which would not have been known during this, is that neuroscience is beginning to show that we make decisions before we think about them, that we think <laughs> about the decision yeah. in an instant, and we make that, or we make the decision instantaneously. And then in the fractional seconds after the decision has been made, we reason them into we made a choice. And based on, uh, what is it, fMRI, functional magnetic resonant imaging of the brain. Um, Someone should take a look at my brain because it can literally take me hours to decide what I'm going to have for breakfast. Well, I yes, and and I agree that that obviously that's true. So when they say that we have evidence to that effect, I would like in a way to delve deeper and at the same point I would not like to delve deeper because it also comes down to that whole do we have free will. Yes, yes. And and, <laughs> and that would come you... down to me on the side of no we don't really. Um <laughs> And so does does Quist have free will here? Does he choosing to to 
yes, he's choosing to stay in this case. So that argument is valid. He is here. He has chosen to stay with his friend. He has chosen to stay with the daughter. He has at this point a mission to talk the guy into dying. So he's, he's choosing to take on that. I'm not, I'm not saying that that isn't right, but Ridge is making a sort of general argument about the way that Quist behaves. And yes. my thought is, is that that is innate to Quist's personality. It's he's going, his personality or his mind or whatever we want to call it is going to make him choose the path that does that, that, that accepts those responsibilities. And so I don't, or, or I don't know if his I personality would, is the sum total of his choices. If I were to, if I were to say, if somebody were to say to me, ask me about, you, you don't have to stay for this guy. I said, no, I want to stay for this guy. Okay. I've made a choice. But Ridge is saying, you don't have to feel the guilt for your wife's death. And he's saying, I want to. Yes. I choose to accept the guilt for my wife's death. When we've spent a lot of time trying to convince him psychologically that he should not have, he, that he is not responsible for that. He is he's not and saying that you choose to take on something that is truly not <clears throat> he's not he didn't make a decision to get his wife ill he made the decision to accept the blame for that and if it's not his fault objectively or otherwise um yeah i don't know that just well, if it's, I, but it did is... feel like a it felt like a strange response to me when he said that. But then we just like immediately pop into a scene with him talking with MacArthur. And now he's talking about the ability of man to make choices. And you see, oh, well, he's using that as fuel. I get why it was introduced. And I then kind of dismiss the argument with him talking about Ridge. But, you know, post, post because review MacArthur, in mind, it's like it's kind of... Eh. MacArthur does make a choice, right? I mean... Yes. His... He seems, what's intriguing about it is he, is he does seem initially to be very, very set, very wedded to the intellectual arguments he's making about the whole idea of becoming, quotes, pure. Mm -hmm. And his daughter is questioning, is questioning, humanity. I guess, it, how, how, whether his, whether his ability to make the choice he has been making, which is to stay alive, is really genuinely based on a sound understanding. Because when they talk about his brain working better now than, than ever, she says he thinks he's still alive and he's not, which, you know, I think would probably piss Descartes off quite a lot. <laughs> but but, it, but it's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting proposition because she's suggesting that he actually isn't really capable of making that choice, which is a very it's a very difficult position to agree with. So I, I find myself rather repelled by MacArthur's arguments, but on the other hand, they are that is his personal choice, that is, you know, that is the goal he is working towards. It's worrying from an ethical point of view, because what does happen if he gets into a situation where he is no longer able to exercise his choice and he is forced to continue his existence by an earlier decision that he has made. But you you might have to work through that. You can't really deny the guy's the guy's right to to at least pursue that possibility because he genuinely wants it. And he is lucid, and he appears yeah. to be now. Uh... In indeed, so I I don't like his position, and I don't like the daughter's position, and I do, despite your criticism of it, rather like Quist's argument in all of this. And I normally disagree with Quist, so I think that is a proper choice on my part. Do you think that there is any validity in his argument that unfettered his brain can transcend? His mind can transcend. Is that just a pipe dream on his part? I think it probably is, but it was it was so compelling in this story. I I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm only halfway through it. I don't know if you've had Russell T. Davis's years and years over your side of the pond. No, it's a Not it's a kind of, of sort of. Well, so so far, I'm about 
five years into the future or so. One of the characters in it is uh, it, she wants to be what Russell T. Davis calls transhuman. And it, okay. and, it, and it is, you know, he's kind of reinventing Cybermen. He, it's, it's the idea of, of living within the machine, disposing of your body, kind of like hmm. with a song in um, Forest uh-huh. of the Dead or, or something like that. And the problem with it is, the problem I have with the way that he presents it is there is no, there is no real sympathy with that character. It's, it, she doesn't present a, a compelling case why she wants to do this. We just we, uh. we see it as something that we can't understand but we should accept. Very, you know, very much as some people see other people's sexual orientation or um, gender choices or, or whatever – it's it's maybe something they can't even begin to get their their minds around but i feel like the the drama should give you some insight into what's motivating those characters and and that's what that's what gould and that's what troughton actually managed to convey in this you you actually you do that you know the more he talks about it even whilst you're even whilst you're thinking the last thing in the world I would want would be to be a brain in a jar, as you think. But I can actually see why he wants to be one. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna go break a, a fairly long-standing internal policy here of my own because I don't I I've tangentially mentioned this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna go and basically give a plug here um, on a tangential thing, and that is I work for a nonprofit called Camp Quest Arizona, which is part of the Camp Quest Network, which is a series of summer camps for children from non-religious families. Okay. And I tell you that because you need to understand that that 95% of these kids have been raised in an environment where the belief in a higher plane of post-life existence isn't is nonsense. Okay. So you've got a you've got a bunch of kids that that from their core have been raised generally in that way. Not always, but but generally in that way. And one of the things that we do at camp is a thing called Socrates Cafe. They do it elsewhere. It, it's not a strictly a camp quest thing, but but these kids get in and they have these sort of slightly guided discussions on topics that they themselves choose. And these kids are so amazingly deep and thoughtful it's it's an amazing it's it's an amazing to sit there and listen to them sometimes you get the usual kid facile approach but but by and large you get that with adults i'm not i'm not picking on them for kids but i mean sometimes you just get a sort of very young naive uh, look at things but but by and large it's just incredibly deep and thoughtful and one of the things that has come up several years you know do you want to live forever would you like to have your brain put in a machine would you would you if you were conscious and you could live on can your mind transcend these are things that these kids go on and on about and remembering that they don't have any grounding in thinking that that there is more beyond that plane it's amazing Mm -hmm. that you do it falls into these two camps you see it it happens over and over again there are always the kids who are like i would never want to do that because you know, I wouldn't be a person anymore. I I wouldn't have my physical sensations anymore. Uh, I would I would lose touch with what it is to be human. And then there are those that are my brain and my mind is who I am. And you know, all the arguments that you might put out was like, well, you don't get to feel things anymore. It's like, well, but actually, it's a brain. You could probably program stimulation, and you you know, with technology, we can do this. We can we can make this happen, and you never see either side convince each other, and that's what I'm. That, that's the takeaway from this is that you get this position, and you either think it's going to be great, um, or or you think you're no longer a human, and I don't know what makes that. I don't know what makes that uh, dichotomy fall down, but it happens every time they get into a discussion on that, and. Uh, <laughs> so when I was listening to these guys talking, I was like, yeah, this is this is exactly the kind of stuff that that people who have really thought about it or or really have a passionate opinion about it will get into and hmm. and, and take. And it, it, it was it, it was solid. I mean, 
the discussion was solid. And on top of that, and it also harkened back to the kids and go, and so was theirs. The, the, there's a question here in this, back to the actual topic, but I just had to, had to do that. Um, because it, because it's real. It, it's real world in a hypothetical way from people. And I could see how somebody who might have a spiritual view might have a different opinion, right? If you, if you came at mm-hmm. it and you believe that, that dying, you go to heaven or that, that if you have, you know, you could reach perfection through reincarnation or through, and maybe this is how you reach that perfection or whatever that, but which, we're talking about which relative. interestingly isn't even touched on in this. It's, it is the, not. The and that's spiritual dimension is completely ignored. It's also what made me think of the kids at, at Camp Quest. So um, is there a slippery slope involved in this? I mean, if, if you lost a leg, you'd want to continue living, right? Or would you? <laughs> Right, you know, at what point do you say, okay, I think I think we're done here. Uh, I'm I'm completely lucid, but now I'm paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and, I, and I, you know, they, a, they've cheated difficult... in this story because they've put the future on him, and they said, well, you know, pretty soon you're not going to be able to move your mouth, and then you mm. won't be able to smell, and you won't be able to see. And I'm thinking, if that if that illness keeps creeping up like that why do they think the brain's not going to die too from this but but yes, you know I guess. because it's going to be it's going to go to the absolute worst case scenario and i think that i can go on record saying right now that if i was locked in conscious or unconscious in a coma and <clears throat> was not coming back throw a switch <laughs> right D- don't, yeah. don't i don't i don't want to be alive like that i don't i don't know where the human spirit the human animal gives up hope to the point where you go, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. And it's, and it's hard to know that if you're not in that, if you're not facing that, because it's not just the philosophical basis on, on which, as you say, the, you know, the kids at Camp Quest divide, but also it's the experiential dimension to it. How can you know what you would do until you're in that situation? Yeah. <clears throat> which the is, que- the- I guess it's, a, I guess that's an example of how, huh? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to be profound here for a moment. I, I made a comment that occasionally you hear the kids make a, a naive comment. And I wasn't referring specifically on this topic, right? But I, as a 55 year old person, sometimes hear things that they say that I, as a 55 year old person go, yeah, you have not actually encountered that in the world yet. And they haven't. Right. I mean, this is unfortunately mm-hmm. what how people have been dismissing the opinions of young people forever. And in a way, I'm guilty of it. Uh, but in a way, I'm also going, yep. And mine were dismissed and I was wrong. Um, but here is something that none of us, virtually none of us in existence out there have experienced anything like it. So a naive young opinion is no different from an old person's naive opinion mm-hmm. because we don't know. We can't mm-hmm. know. It, we'll, it's always a realm of speculation. What would I do in that situation? Um, yeah. So, okay. Absolutely. And on that, on the, on that question of, um, just on the technical question of whether his brain would continue to work, I also wondered, because they, they were saying he would lose the sensory inputs, he, he would go blind. Um, mm-hmm. So they were looking at um, means to be able to read his thought patterns and to get a yes and a no, but I had no idea how they were going to how they were going to provide him with information or to provide him with the stimulus, the questions they would want him to answer. Yes, <laughs> good no. point. His ears will still be working though; those those won't go out. Well, in that case, mm-hmm. that's fine. I wasn't yeah. qu- I wasn't quite sure what it was, and I don't think it needed explaining, but it did occur to me. I wonder if they can just stimulate the brain. Just put shock, sure. put a couple sure of needles be, in there and yeah. just give him up. Could you, could you tell? <laughs> Let's say, for example, that you had an electric needle in the left side of your brain and you had an electric needle in the right side of your brain. <clears throat> Would it be possible for you to tell whether it was the left or the right one that was triggered? Probably, but I'm not prepared to test the, the hypothesis. <laughs> because, you know, all of our left-right uh, 
has to do with our sensory input, sound, sight. Those all have physical, external bearing on us, but do do we have right and left sensation? Well, as long as they were different. The brain? Don't don't you do you feel? So, for example, do you feel, well? Would they be? You different? don't know. But, you don't have to know which is left and which is right. You have to be able to distinguish one from the other. Do you feel the center of your being is in your head? Isn't that Probably, isn't that kind of a, that's a that's isn't a that kind question. of a strange thing? If your if your brain was actually down in your butt, as I, <laughs> some people who may even be elected officials in some countries <laughs> that I'm aware of that speak English in the present reality, um, you know, but your eyes and your ears and your nose and your mouth are all still in your head. Would you feel like your head was the place where it was at? you feel like it was down in your butt? <laughs> I, I think I just, it, a lot of it has to do with where your eyes are, really. I, I think so. I think it does have to do with the, 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 the I.O. ports. But, uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I think about these things. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly enough, I, I do, in fact, think about these things. <laughs> so, let's see. I feel that they did a very good job and I guess you could say it comes down to the direction but obviously it's there in the script that like Quist was being intentionally annoying to MacArthur for example walking mm-hmm. along behind him and standing at the head of the bed and and talking to him in such a way that he couldn't see him uh, you know to infuriate him and I think that was in, obviously that was intentional and it was intended to remind him of the limitations of the existence that he mm-hmm. currently has. Did he also intentionally leave the speaker off so that MacArthur would have that experience of, I can't get hold of anybody? Because I, I think that was probably the most think he pivotal scene. I think he did. Well, we didn't see it, but I did. Um I, I, I'd like to think he did. I'd like to think that was his most convincing argument. Let's, I mean, they're, let's just they're give you a little conscious. while here while you're... Mm. They're, they're all there because of MacArthur. And so very little time would pass without them realizing that they were no longer able to hear anything from his room. How, how often do you think he talks to them, though? That's a good question. Like once well, a day? Or, I don't hey, know. It's feeding time know. or... Yeah, perhaps... <laughs> Perhaps. And they were all busy having a conversation with Quist and whatnot. So it, w- it was high, busy activity time. Uh, yeah. I, I, how, and how long would it take? I mean, how long does time pass? How slowly does time pass when you're home sick in bed and you have nothing to do except lie there? I find it painfully slow. But I'll, I'll, I'll feel like I've been there for hmm. all day and then I'll finally look. And it'll be, oh, it's been half an hour. Great. <laughs> there's, so, a, there's, an, there's an amazing speech about that whole very idea in the um, big Finnish play Davros by Lance Parkin. Well, it's been a long time since I've heard Davros that. One, I have heard it. Yeah, it was well worth seeking out and, and listening to, even just for that speech. One of many good ones in that story. Yeah, maybe this guy's becoming Davros, not... Uh... Not a Cyberman. <laughs> Do you think that Patrick... Tra- I, okay, so some actors are, like, really into their roles. So, like, David Tennant or Colin Baker. I mean, when they went into be Doctor Who, right, they were, they were fans, right? And I've always gotten the impression, for all how wonderful Patrick Troughton is in the role and how wonderful Patrick Troughton was when he would go to conventions and be there for the Doctor Who people because he would. He was genuinely lively and entertaining. I never got to see him, but I know from people who did that, that you know, he was on. But I've also gotten the impression that it was a job. He's a jobbing character actor. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of times when you ask an actor many years later, well, what did you think about the, uh, the Cybermen in this episode? They're like, it was a script. I read the lines. I, I you know, I've moved on. Yeah, I've done sure. stuff. I've kind of got that impression from Patrick Troughton, except when he's, like I said, when he's on. So do you think when he's lying there in this bed, do you think he's going, you know, Cybermen? <laughs> this definitely, this definitely seems no. like Cybermen to me. 
<laughs> no, no. I think we. I think we're there thinking that because we've watched, you know, the invasion or any other number of Cybermen episodes. I mean, how would Troughton even be aware of the Tenth Planet? Well, the Tenth Planet, no. But all the other Cybermen stories that he had to explain to his companions, uh, you know, what the Cybermen were. Uh, I don't know. Yes, but it, so, so, yeah. So, I mean, he had, a, what, three Cybermen stories? Is it only three? Wheel in Space, uh, Invasion, uh, base. the Planet one, Tomb of the Cybermen. Oh, yes, goodness me. Okay, so he had he had a fair few. More than anyone else. Yes, indeed. Um, but nevertheless, those are the only ones... That he, I don't get the impression that he would have carried on watching Doctor Who after he finished making it. I mean, even that, even when he was making it, was he watching it? I, I don't know whether it would have stuck in his mind like it stuck in our minds as Doctor Who fans who have gone back and rewatched and rewatched these stories, or at least the ones we can rewatch, and inevitably we kind of draw a parallel when we see a, a guest appearance like this. But it's okay. not the same for him. He is just doing a job, like you say. Flip it on the end. Do you think when they were making the episode, they were aware? Because I'm sure obviously Kit Peddler and Jerry Davis had to be. And if they were involved in the show, they had to see the parallel here. Do you think there was somebody no, that I'm consciously sure. made Did... the decisions like, who should we get to play this part? I know. The Doctor. Well, I'm not sure that you would cast the Doctor in the role of the proto-Cyberman. But also, how how aware would they have been of the parallel? Because they're actually steeped in the ideas that gave rise to Tense Planet and, and gave rise to all of the Doomwatch episodes that, that they wrote. But because it's their it's their milieu, they're they're much more alive to the subtleties of it and the differences, if you like, because there obviously are differences, than they are of the similarities. We see it from the outside because you can see, just like with any writer, you can see parallels between the works they produce and those are the things that you go, oh, that's characteristic of so-and-so. But for the writers themselves, they may think, well, I've produced something very different because you're not necessarily self-aware about the things that you do that are just kind of intrinsic to the work you produce. I don't know. I just, I just thought it was so. I mean, Troughton's a great actor. I can't, I can't fault the casting of Troughton or any other actor that would have fulfilled this role. It just, he is known as the Cyberman Doctor, and 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 always has been, and not as a Cyberman, but you know what I mean. Um, but in 1971, he would have so. been known as the Cyberman Doctor because there weren't that many doctors choose between right. and clearly but the Cybermen had appeared the Cybermen just, took the just place of the Daleks did. during his time basically hmm. so you know you, you think of people I, I would think in 1971 that people would think Daleks they would think of William Hartnell and if they thought of Cybermen they would think of Patrick Troughton because uh, just the way it kind of played out but yeah, it's okay just, just curious okay the Doctor Seton has worked with MacArthur to MacArthur's specifications. He has prolonged his life. He has fulfilled his duty as a doctor. He has done no harm. Or has he done harm? Because there's a question, is this harm or not? But he has certainly kept him alive in accordance with a man's wishes. In 1972, Britain, when the daughter turned the switches off, did she commit murder? No. I Why? don't think so. Do you think that was a thing that doctors, well, people could do? I mean, I, I well, again, it could be very different in the United States. You can't even, you can't even I, commit suicide legally in most places in the United States. So, you know, just because, just because uh, MacArthur says, go ahead and throw the switch. That's not legal either. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about the history of it because, you know, what, what was the legal status in 1971? And 
it would have been a different scenario because life support would not have been as advanced as well it certainly as this yeah but but i mean i know that people not, still fight that it's not the question of killing someone the question is of turning off life support but if you're on life support you're conscious you're are you i don't know i don't know if she had it's a waited legal question if she'd waited until after he could no longer talk, would that make a difference? And then she decides. I don't know. I, I'm, I, I, well, I would again, think, my guess is that everyone in that room is just going to go, yeah, the equipment stopped working. He was on life support and it just, it no longer kept him going. And that, that the report in the death certificate is just going to say, is not going to say that Flora flipped the switch, would be my guess. In much the same way as no one's going to bother to ask the question of whether or not it was fraud to... Uh, uh, the death certificate is going to... Fake the stockholders. Is going to record whatever whatever it was he actually died of. I, I, it's not clear yeah, I don't know. what he died of, but he died because his body wasn't able to sustain life. So, you know, it was respiratory failure or heart failure or something along these lines. Mm. Mm. If you're talking about legal question, I grant you the moral question is a different one, but the legal question is probably <laughs> they not. They usually are. The moral question. Actually, no, to me, the moral question is, is cut and dried. MacArthur said, go ahead and throw the switch. You throw the switch. Done deal. That's... Morally cut oh, and dried. Yeah. He made that no, choice. That is, that is cut and dried. The, the, the complicated moral question is whether there is actually, whether there should be any differentiation drawn between an act of omission and uh, an, a more direct act. So you draw a distinction between, between actually actively committing suicide or, or being assisted in committing suicide as opposed to withdrawing life support which and you know to this day assisted suicide is still it is illegal yes and the, and it's legal in the, the, the uk yeah the distinction is drawn that you know in one case you are withdrawing support but in the other case you are actively intervening but from a moral point of view it is quite another matter to draw a distinction between an act and an omission i don't know that i have anything else specifically on the episode i've got i've got one thing that i found when i looked into john gould who because i just thought this episode was really beautifully written and it was written I've by a guy seen... who'd obviously thought quite deeply about the issues in it and had you know had, had written these these speeches about what it means to be human and tr trying to explore that and in particular this idea of the self-awareness of death he says every every human knows even from a very young age that one day they're going to die this episode was broadcast in february 1971 and he John died, in died in uh, yes 1974 aged 37 as far as i can figure out which i don't know i just found a bit you think he knew I, I was i was moved by that fact given given what he had written and also by the fact that what he might have written had he lived longer, because I think we may have been deprived from a very selfish point of view. I did not see anything that I have ever seen that he worked on. Uh, no. So but, I, 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 but I, did I also didn't see what he died of. No, I could find very little information about him. Although I'm not familiar with anything else he's done, The um, there was a, a mini-series called The Donati conspiracy. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. That seems to have been very highly regarded. Um, sequel was made, so I, I it may be it may be that I should have um, been more familiar with his work. It's not quite true. I've never seen anything he's done. He actually wrote some additional material for Do Not Adjust Your Set, but I'm not sure that gag writing for a, a Monty mm -hmm. Python precursor counts as being particularly significant work. I think technically I probably have those DVDs, so <laughs> I may have seen it as well. Now that now that you mention it, um, yeah, yeah, I wonder. I, it'd be interesting to find out if he was, uh, you know, a terminal 
known to be terminal. But I don't think it's too terribly surprising that you haven't seen anything about it since he died <clears throat> before you were born, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yes. So given how the BBC is and British television, some things survive and some things don't. Um, yeah, yeah, another good one. I kind of like going into them blind, so to speak, uh, on the Doom Watch episodes. I mean, I was completely blind on this one. I hadn't even seen a plot synopsis. So I thought I thought we were all about the mustard gas. And I, I honestly was, when it was the mustard gas, I'm like, oh boy, this one's gonna be a dull one. <laughs> well, in that case... Uh, Simon, thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure, as always. And listeners, I do hope you'll join us all again next time on Fusion Patrol. You've been listening to Fusion Patrol, a listener-supported podcast. Find out how you can be a sponsor and get early access to all episodes and more at patreon.com slash fusion patrol. Come join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter. All episodes are available at FusionPatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf. This has been a Lone Locust production.